Well, I'm so glad that you are here this morning, all of you, whether you've been here a hundred times or this is your first time here, because this is what I really believe. I do not say this lightly, and I don't say it neither in a, like a mystical kind of way, but I believe that God has something for you here today. And this is the way it works. This is the beauty of God, is we don't all receive the same thing. In just a moment, when I, I give this talk, I understand, you know, my role. I'm simply a messenger, and it is God's responsibility to really speak to your heart. I've done my best. I prayed like crazy, worked like crazy on a talk, and just trying to, to my best ability. But this is what I know. Unless, like, the Holy Spirit causes it to become alive in you, then, it's, you know, it's just a waste of time. But this is what I know. It's never a waste of time when the Bible is involved because this is what the Word says, that His Word does not return void. And this is one of the unique ways that God works. It's not like everybody's going to receive the same thing. It's like some of you, at some point during this talk, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be like, oh, man, I, that was for me. And I, I know that was for me, and that was for me. And I'm just going to take it, I'm going to embrace it. And that portion may not necessarily speak to the person that's seated, you know, seven rows down from you. It may be at a different part that, that God just says, you know what? Boy, that's what I'm speaking to you about, and I want you to hear, and I want you to react accordingly. So that's always an exciting time where we're just saying, you know, God, I'm here. I, I don't want to put up my walls. I don't want to put in, up any defenses. I'm just here, and I'm available, and I'm open, and God, whatever you speak to me. You know, I'm, I'm open, I'm ready, I'm eager to hear. Now, I, I want to start this talk, and we've come to the end of James. This is a fascinating uh, New Testament book. It's packed with practical wisdom and hope and encouragement, and, uh, you know, it's just a great, great book. And we've been looking through it, but now we're coming to the end of it. In fact, this is the second to the last talk. Uh, I'll deal with the verse later, sort of the end of the talk. I'll bring this sort of into play. And then next week is it, and you do not want, I'm just telling you, you do not want to miss the final talk in this series. You've got to be here next Sunday for that. But I want to start by asking you a question, and then we'll just sort of start moving through this, all right? So here's the question. How many of you have ever been outside of the United States to another country? Let me just see your hand. You've been out of the United States and to, to another country. That's a good number of you. How many of you that have traveled outside of the country, you, you've been to like a third world country, a third world nation? Let me, let me just see your hand. A lot of you, you know, you've done that, and I've done that numerous times. And uh, in, in fact, I can remember uh, when our middle child, uh, True, uh, was in fifth grade, and uh, I'm, I'm like, you know what? He's in fifth grade now. It's time for him to see how a lot of the world lives because we're so blessed in, in America. And uh, here's the reality, and this is what I, I wanted to share with you, that although we are just that, we are so blessed and we have so much. And you may be thinking, well, you know, I don't, I don't have a whole lot and uh, I don't have like this really expensive car. I don't live in this big, but I'm just telling you, listen now, if you've, if you've got, if you've got secure shelter and you've got adequate clothing and you've got food to eat at least a couple of times a day, if you've got, listen, if you've got a checking account, the vast majority of the world thinks that you're insanely rich. They just do. But you know what is ironic about it all? It's sad, but it's true. One of the things, when you talk about the blessed nation that we live in, I know we've got problems. I know we've got challenges. I'm not overlooking that. But I'm telling you, in the economic reality of how this globe operates, America, we're like at the top of the list in terms of economic reality. 
But let me tell you where we're also at the top of the list. We're also at the top of the list in matters of being so lonely. Loneliness among Americans is like at the top of the list. So what does that tell us? We can have all of these kind of things. And, and we saw this. My, my son, I wanted him to be exposed to the reality that you don't have to have a bunch of stuff to make you happy. And so I can remember, he's in fifth grade. We get on a plane. We're going to hook up with a team down in this particular third world country. And so I think that our initial flight was out of Jacksonville. And we go from Jacksonville to Miami. We go from Miami. We fly into like the capital city of this particular country. And I'd been on trips before. He had not. So uh, we came through this. Now, I grew up in Atlanta. And so you ever flown through Atlanta? This is like a big airport. Now, even though this airport was in the capital city of this country, it was not like Atlanta Airport. It just wasn't. And so I'd had a missionary tell me uh, very early on, maybe one of my first trips out of country, who, who said this to me, and I took it to be wise advice. He said, if you ever travel to another country and somebody's trying to communicate with you in the language of what is native to them and you don't understand it, then it would probably be a good idea for you to smile. And so I thought, well, that sounds reasonable to me. So I can remember... Drew and I got off the plane, and we had to go through customs, and they just sort of pulled us aside and took his suitcase. I remember this. So it happened yesterday. Took his suitcase and uh, set my suitcase and opened it up and just looked. I mean, just sort of looked at us like, hmm. And so I'm like, okay. The missionary said to smile. And so I just start smiling. I'm like, and, and so he starts talking to me. He starts asking me questions. I don't have a clue as to what he's asking me. And so he's asking me questions. I'm like, uh-huh, yes. And he, I thought about it afterwards. I mean, that uh, probably not incredibly wise uh, because he could have been asking, hey, you know, have you come into our country with an evil intent? Yes, I have. <laughs> How about any drugs? Have you brought any drugs? It's your suitcase. Do you have? I most certainly do, Yes. And then, like, after, so we, we walk out, you know, they turned out to be really, really nice, give us our luggage back. And so we walk out, and it wasn't like, you know, we had to meet up with two people who were going to find us and take us to wherever we were going, because I still didn't know exactly where we were going. I just knew that we were in this country, and they were going to get us from point A to point B. So I knew them, and I knew to be looking for them, but I was even staggered when I walked out and I saw not a few people, not 20 people. Not it was like uh, my son and me walked into a stadium full of people. There were hundreds of people. And I felt my heart tremble for just a moment. I thought, we're never going to find the people that are looking for us, and they're never going to find us. How in the world, with this sea of people, would they ever find us? Impossible. And then I got this idea. Well, here's what I'm going to do. We could be standing here for hours. And I sure, certainly don't want to be stranded here overnight, not know where to go or not be able to communicate the language. So I was feeling a little bit of desperation. If they're not finding us, I'm going to go find them. And so I said to, and please don't turn against me, moms. Just hear me out, okay? Just please. So I took him, and I said, Drew, Dad's going to go because we could be here a long time if we don't get found. And so I said, Drew, and I turned the suitcase up, you know, upright, and leaned it against the wall, and I stood him up on this wall, and I said, don't move. Don't you dare move. I said, I'm going to be walking out through all of these people, you know, and I, I knew, you know, being 6'4", that I'd stand uh, up, you know, a little tall anyhow, 
But I just said, you know, I'm going to walk, and I'll turn around, and I'll look. And, I'll, and, you know, it took me a few minutes, but actually it worked. But then I thought, and I, I know as I'm telling that, your mom's like turning against me, you dirty dog. How could you leave your son standing? On, and I could say, but what, yeah, but what if between you and him? And I get that. I didn't get it initially, but I got it when I was walking back. I'm like, I can't. And I'm just seeing him standing there. And I walk up and I, I say, okay, here, here we go. And then I'm like, hey, let's not tell mama about this, okay? Let's just, just between you and I, and we're going to have a great time. Well, you know, uh, these other countries, it's amazing. And he saw this. I mean, nothing, nothing, nothing. But just happy and just sense of community and oneness that you could, you know, these, these Christ followers that we were working with to establish this church. And, and I just thought, back in America, we have so much, but how loneliness is so pervasive in our culture. And... Uh, Today, I'm going to take you in just a few moments. Uh, it's a little later in this talk, but I'm going to take you to a place in, in James. But here's what I want us, and it's what I'm really going to unpack with you for the next few moments. It is this idea of how productive and healthy it is to exist in community life as God designed it to be so. Community life. And I want to just paint a little bit of a picture, and then we're going to move uh, toward that. But I want to paint a picture beginning with the Trinity. The Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And, you know, sometimes that's a complex issue to understand, but I, I want to keep it simple. I want to be very brief here, but I, I want to say it in this way. Christianity teaches, this is one of the preeminent teachings of Christianity, that God exists in three persons, that God exists in three persons. Tremendously significant, this teaching, that God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And again, I don't want to get too complex here, but in the Bible, we see the Father sending the Son. The Father sends the Son into the world. And, and you know the story, you know, Christmas time, you hear it often repeated, how that Jesus came and was born as a baby in Bethlehem, but how that the Father sent the Son, and here's, here's what the Son did. The Son delighted to do the Father's will. Uh, again and again, Jesus would say, my, my will is to accomplish the mission of the Father. I want to fulfill the Father's will. And so the Father, you got to see this now. you got to catch this. It will help you. So the Father said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send the Son. The Son delights to do the will of the Father, and the Son is always pointing back to the Father. And he's saying things like, hey, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he's talking about his Father's mission and how that he's come to fulfill it and, and all of that. And then later we know about the Son how that the son being although he's totally innocent completely sinless how that the son went to the cross and died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins he had now committed any sins we've committed all kind of sins and he died on the cross so that we could have forgiveness of sin and the bible says three days later he was resurrected and then a little while after that he started talking about what we call now his ascension how that he was going to ascend back to the father in heaven where he had came from and he's gathering his followers together and he said I'm just telling you ahead of time here's what's going to happen I've resurrected from the dead and in a short duration of time I'm going back to the father and then he says words that initially sound completely ridiculous to them he said and when I go away it is to your advantage that I go away and they had to be like really I mean an advantage I mean Jesus you're you're the one that brings us a sense of security 
you're our teacher, you're our leader, you're the one that, you know, has discipled us. And now you're saying it's a good thing? And Jesus said, yeah, it's a good thing that I go away. Because even though Jesus was fully God, even though he was completely divine, he had taken upon himself humanity. We call that his incarnational life. He had taken upon himself. So he was fully God, yet he was fully man. He was subject to things that Jesus had never, as the second person of the Trinity, had never been subject to before. How many of you know that when Jesus was in heaven, he never needed a nap? When Jesus was in heaven, he never had an urge to go to Chick-fil-A. When you're God, you don't have to eat. I mean, but he subjected himself, and so in part of that incarnation alive, where now for the first time Jesus has to do things like eat and sleep and all of that, now he's saying, you know, I'm limited in, in where I, I go. Jesus, let me say it this way, Jesus could not be in Judea and Samaria at the same time. He could not. Jesus could not be in Samaria, in Samaria and in Capernaum at the same time. He could only be in one place at one time. So when Jesus said, all right, here's what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to send. But when I go away, the Father's going to send to you somebody else. And he's going to send to you now the third person of the Trinity. He's going to send to you the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's going to be with you everywhere you go. I could only be in one place, one town, one conversation, one community at a time, you know, one, one place of worship at a time, but the Holy Spirit, he's going to be everywhere. In fact, he said, if you receive me, Jesus said, here's what's going to happen. The Holy Spirit's going to come and live on the inside of you, and your body's actually going to become the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's saying. All right? Now, in regards to that, so, you know, and you've and you, you got to understand this. You've got to get this. It's so important. Uh, and one writer says it this way. I like the way they put it. Uh, there is this kind, and speaking of the Trinity, there's this kind of unending dance of mutual servanthood and submission and delight and love. But this is what we've all got to understand. In the Trinity, in the Trinity, although these three persons of the Trinity There is profound oneness. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now, toward the end of creation, we find the Trinity's activity in forming human beings. And of this, it is said, and you're saying, really, was that not just God? No, I mean, in the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, profound oneness, all of them were involved in the process of creation. And in that, it said that God created male and female. All people are created in the image of God. This is all the way back in Genesis. All people are created in the image of God, and that male and female, he created them. So when God created, and I'm just laying some groundwork here. Stay with me. When God created male and female, he created them with this capacity for community, capacity for community. And, um, you know, God created, we know who God created first, right? Who did God create first? He created Adam, And yet there was no completeness in Adam necessarily, and so there were all these animals. In fact, it's it's amazing. God said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you dominion over all these animals. In fact, it's like Adam got to name all the animals. I mean, could you imagine? Here's what's going to, and I knew it probably didn't happen exactly this, but it's like a long parade of animals, and here's Adam, and Adam's going to name them all one by one, and then so he starts. He, you know, like one, I think, cow. Yeah, cow. Let's call that a cow. And let's call that a chicken. And, you know, let's call that. And then he got into all these. I mean, where was his mind? Uh, a rhin- 
a rhinoceros. How about that? Does that fit for you? A platypus. I mean, he's just going, and it's like animal after animal, and then it's like God waited to the very best one of all uh, to, you know, last. It's like all these animals, and it's like the very best for last, and it's like Adam's just standing there, and he said, yeah, I see that. Wow, that's beautiful. I think I'll call that a bulldog. I'm just, I'm just saying. I'm just, I think that ought to be a bulldog. Okay, maybe not. Some of you th- maybe had another animal come to mind, but I've got one of the more modern translations, so it may not be that way in your Bible. But it's like, out of all this, and God said, you know, there's, there's not completion. So God reached into the rib, put him to sleep, reached into the side of Adam and took out a rib, and from rib, you know, formed Adam from the dust of the earth. Now, from Adam's rib, he forms woman, and it says the two shall become one. In fact, if you've ever been to a wedding, you've probably at some point in the ceremony heard that verse quoted, and the two shall become one, male and female, in marriage. So you have that, the two shall become one. In the Trinity, three persons in one, Father, Son, and Spirit. But in actuality, it reaches even beyond this. Look at this verse with me up on the screen. This is out of the Psalms. This is Psalm 133 and verse 1, and I want everybody to read it with me. Help me out. Let's all read it together. How wonderful it is, how pleasant for God's people to live together in what? In harmony, in this sense of oneness, in oneness. Now, look at what Jesus said in John's gospel. This is is what Jesus is saying. Jesus said, and he's talking to the Father. He said, I will remain in the world no longer. But they, talking about his followers, they're still in the world, and I'm coming to you. He's talking about his ascension. Remember what he told uh, his disciples? Now he's saying, I'm, I'm coming. This is the ascension. I'm coming back to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be what? So that they may be one as we, who's we? That's the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, as we are one, that they, my people, that they may be one even as we are one. Now look at this next verse, this A part of verse 32 out of Acts, Acts 4. Read this one with me, everybody. All the believers were one, one in heart and mind. So in the balance of our time that we have here, I want to talk about what it looks like when we come together as one. It's not our idea. This is God's idea. This is the idea of Jesus. That they, you saw what Jesus said. Jesus said that my followers would be one even as we, Father, Son, Spirit, even as we are one. So let's talk about that. What happens when we gather as one? And you may want to get this down, you know, on your iPad, your phone somewhere, your tablet. I'm going to give you three thoughts along this idea of oneness. Here's the first one. We gather as one to worship God. We gather together as one to worship God. Uh, Sally Morgenthaler has written a tremendous book about worship, and in it she says this, Worship is the most powerful tool we have for satisfying the hunger of famished, injured souls, for breaking down strongholds of pride and unbelief, and for ushering in the gift of true joy. And worship does that. And of course, we can have personal times of worship, and many of you do that. You have incorporated that into your devotional life, your daily life, where you said, you know, like I do, I'm going to read the Bible, I'm going to read a portion of the Bible, and then I'm going to pray, and then maybe you have as part of your prayer time, well, you know, I'm going to confess sin, I'm going to thank God specifically for the things that God is doing in my life. There's some people that I'm praying for, here's some needs that I'm asking God to meet, but we want to take times to adore God and, and to worship God and to praise God. 
And we ought to have that, and I'm not ruling that out, and I'm not saying, you know, it's one or the other. It can be both. All I'm saying is this. There is something dynamic that takes place when we come together, just like we've done this morning, when we come together and we worship God together as one. And don't forget, don't forget this, that when others notice you worshiping God, that it is inspiring and it is contagious to them. It is. And, and I'll give you a personal example. Um, there are so many details that uh, you just would have no idea uh, how much goes into planning and putting together one weekend service, two back-to-back, 70-minute service. So many details, so many things has got to happen. And for me, it's just the way that my brain works. I'm very detail-oriented. I've got sort of this analytical click in my brain. So I can't help it, but from time to time, because I'm thinking ahead, I'm thinking about what's going to be happening, I'm thinking about, and so all that's working through my brain. And sometimes, if I'm not careful, my mind can go that direction. But can I tell you what has often happened to me? I've, I've just paused for a moment. I've looked out at you. And I've seen you worshiping God. And it sort of snaps me back into reality. It's not uncommon for me to see people daring worship. Sometimes their head is bowed, and you know they're like talking to God and just worshiping God. Others may have their hands lifted. I've seen people just all the time. We every week it seems that just some people respond to God and worship with tears and I've lifted hands and bowed their head, and there's just different ways. But I've, I've looked out at you in worship, and I'm like, you know what it does? Your worship is inspiring. It inspires me. It is contagious. It makes me want to worship. It makes the people that are around you worshiping uh, want to worship. And you're not worshiping for show. That is why it comes across as authentic. And it also speaks to those who are, are spiritual seekers, maybe even skeptics who are like, is this stuff even all real? And, you know, I don't get it. And, and yet they, they cannot deny the reality. There's just, you know, obviously your love for God and your worship for God. And, and you're just trying to find a way in your soul to express to God how grateful that you are are for what God has done in your life, how grateful that you are that God is Lord of your life. And that kind of stuff, it's contagious. It inspires. And, it, it, and that's, in fact, I think is the title of Morgan Thaler's book. Worship is a witness and it speaks to people. And when we worship together as one, it reminds us that we're part of something. When we come together as we've done today, it reminds us and we worship together. It reminds us that we are part of something that is much bigger than our own little life, our own little agenda. And we may have walked into this place, and maybe this is you, and you've come into this place today and you're so discouraged and you're so downcast. Or maybe you've come in today, uh, you know, and, and sometimes that's obvious. You know, I, I, I eat, there's one restaurant, you know, I eat at all the time, like six mornings a week. You know about that one. But there's another one that, that I go to that obviously I'm in there way too much as well. Because I, I kid you not, I was seated at a table the other day and three different people that work at this restaurant walked by my table. All three of them said, hi, Jeff, at different times while I was there. And I've never met even one of them in my whole life. And they're like, hi, Jeff. And I'm like, Hi. And I, I've never met him, so it made me a little bit concerned. Like maybe my 
pitcher, or, you know, is in kitchen, and they're like, or something, or, you know, most wanted pitcher or something. But so I've gotten, because I'm there, I've gotten to know the, the wait staff. And, and I was in there recently, and I could just tell one, one of the young ladies there, she's just having like a great day. She had a bouncer and step, and she just smiled, and, and they're playing some music in the background, and I could see her singing along with that. And she's like, hi, Jeff. I hope you're having a good day. And so, you know, she was up. But maybe you're not feeling up. Maybe you're not feeling like real vivacious and energetic. Maybe you're just downcast in spirit. Maybe you're overwhelmed. Maybe you're feeling anxious. And then you come together in a place like this and something unexplainable begins to happen. We come together and we start to worship. And brothers and sisters in Christ are worshiping around you. And you all of a sudden start feeling blessed by that. And you begin to recall that your Father in heaven is amazingly powerful and that you are held in strong and secure hands and that he is bigger than any challenge that you will ever face in your life. And when did it all get started? It all got started when you started just looking around and you're just seeing people worshiping God and you you were reminded God is a big God he's a powerful God in fact one of the Greek words for worship begins with the prefix mega which means as you well know large like a mega mall or a mega church and it says it's this this idea that we are worshiping mega God and as we do it enlarges our ability to experience God and to understand God and when we're like caught up in worshiping God our heart begins to grow and our faith begins to grow and our joy begins to grow which is why it's just unthinkable to me to be quite honest with you, that you and I can be the recipients of such good gifts from God, like life and breath and family and friends, and the wonderful gift of salvation that Jesus made available when he spilled his own blood on the cross. And we can can be the recipients of that and not offer up to God that which he deserves. Worship, praise, thanksgiving, it's unthinkable to me that we could receive all that we receive from God and not want to respond to him in worship. Samuel Bringo has written this, praise is almost the only thing we, we do on earth that we shall not cease to do in heaven. Let me give you a second thought. What happens when we come together as one? When we come together as one, we learn from the Bible together. It's what I hope we're doing right now, learning together from the Bible. Some time ago, I picked up a book by Wayne Codero, and in it, he said this. I found this statement. He said, the Bible remains the best-selling book on the planet. That's true, every year. The best-selling book on the planet, a position that is uh, occupied from the time books were first printed. He goes on to say, skeptics and dictators and antagonists and many others have tried to stamp out the word and remove it from existence. But it's a funny thing, he says, the Bible's opponents keep dying while the Bible keeps living on and on. You see, everybody's going to learn from somebody. You've learned from somebody. I've learned from somebody. Who are you learning from? You may learn from your parents, or you may learn from your peers, or you may be educated by the media, potentially. But the Bible says that we should learn from God. And how do we learn from God? There's only one way to learn from, learn from God, and that is we immerse ourselves into God's Word. And it's a beautiful thing when we do this together. The early church did this together. 
In fact, the early church took this incredibly serious. The book of Acts tells us, listen, friends, we're not going to go there for time's sake, but the Bible tells us that in the book of Acts, these early, you know, when the church is first birthed and these first Christians, and it says they gathered together and they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. And that word devoted there meant, meant a priority. Nothing, they would allow nothing to get, nothing, nothing, nothing to get in the way of them coming together so they could learn together as one from the Bible. Massive priority. You know, I told you I have this sort of analytical click in my brain. And like when I got up this morning, and I'll just give you an example. I got up this morning and uh, I hadn't really been paying. I'm an early riser. I hadn't really been paying attention to the weather much. And so when I walked outside, I'm like, wow, it's, you know, it looks like pretty, potentially a pretty rainy day. Now, it wasn't like pouring down, and, and like, for me, and this may seem strange to you, but for me, I'm like, great, great. I'm, I, you know, I don't want it to be like, you know, pouring down, because that makes it difficult for people to get in and out of the building, but uh, sometimes, this is, you know, this is, I haven't actually found myself praying this way, but I've thought this prayer before. God, please help it not to rain really hard, that would keep people together from, keep people away from coming together to learn from the Bible. But let it be raining just enough to stop them from going to the beach. <laughs> so not like a downpour. Let it just rain where they get up. And even if they're thinking about, maybe we shouldn't go to church. Maybe you go, oh, no, we can't go today. Yay, God. Yay, God. Not heavy rain, light rain to keep all people away from the beach on Sunday. I think that's God's will. Well, maybe not all day Sunday. Let's see, it's 11.53. All people can go to the beach at 1 o'clock, all right, but not before. The early church made this a priority. Nothing got in the way of it. Consider this in light of what is happening today. According to research by George Barna, fewer than 10% of church-going Christians make important life decisions based on God's Word. What's that telling us? Too many followers of Jesus are not making a priority to learn the Bible. And then those who do hear and encounter it, only about 1 in 10 will allow the Bible to actually steer and define their life. Friends, I'm just saying to you, with absolute urgency, as urgent as I could say, if I was a screamer, which I'm not, I would scream it but I'll just say it. Don't let that happen to you. God made you to learn and to grow, and you're not going to do that if you're not coming together to learn from the Bible. Look at what Scott McKnight has written. We're summoned by the God who speaks to us in the Bible to listen to God speak and to live out what God directs us to live out and to discern how to live out the story. The story of the Bible is what he's talking about how to live out the story in our own day. Last thought. We come together as one to worship God. We come together as one to learn from the Bible. Thirdly and finally, we gather as one to enjoy healthy, safe community. You see, you and I are designed by God in such a way that we ought to connect with God. 
And let me just say this, and this will save you a lot of time, a lot of trouble, a lot of heartache. There will always be, you can have so much good going around in your life. You can have a good job, and you can have a nice car, and you can have this and that. You can have a little money in the bank. You can have a nice girlfriend, a wonderful husband. You can have any of the, listen, but if you have not connected with God, there's always going to be a God-shaped hole in your life that money, things, people, nobody can fill that void. It will always be there. It will be a nagging reality. Because, listen, when God made you and God made you, the Bible said he knit you together. That's what it says in Isaiah. He knit you together. And, you know, when I think about knitting, I just think about, you know, just. And he knitted you together in your mother's womb. God's the one who gave you the life that you have. And he created you in your mother's womb. You obviously were birthed. And now you're here on this planet. And you were made to connect with God. And there will always be a void in your life if you don't connect with God. But God also created you so that you would connect with other people. In reality, connecting is life, and without it, you're going to be overwhelmed, and I would be overwhelmed by this sense of isolation and loneliness. Remember what I said to you on the beginning of this talk, the front edge of this talk? Americans, although we're some of the most blessed people in the world, research has indicated that we're some of the loneliest people in the world. And it doesn't have to be that way. It should not be that way. This is James 5 now. Look at verse 16 right up here on the screen. Look at this verse with me. James said, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Now, I will admit to you, at first glance, this may look to you to be way more frightening than it actually is, to confess your sins to one another. I don't know about you, but that doesn't get me very fired up. If I were to say to you, just imagine this. If I were to say to you, next Sunday, we're ending our study of James, which that is going to happen. That is going to happen. But what if I said to you, we're just going to close it out different from any other message series that we've ever done before. And one by one, we're going to take time. I'll just take off the mic. I'll hand it to you. And you get to stand before all these people, hundreds of people on a Sunday. And you get to confess your sins before everybody. How many of you would get really excited about that? How many of you would say, I'm not showing up? I'm with you. I wouldn't show up. There'd be nobody here. That is not what James is saying. James is not saying, confess your sins to everybody. How many of you know there are some people, you, you should not even confess a microscopic sin to them because they can't control their lips. They have the spiritual gift of gossip and blabber, and you don't want to confess to them. What James is talking about here actually is living in an authentic, open community with other followers of Jesus. And to confess your sins actually carries this notion that we must acknowledge the truth about our life, the negative as well as the positive. And here's the truth, friends. You and I can't hide in community. We, can't, we can stand in the shadows if we choose isolation, if we say, no, no, that's not going to be apart from me. Not me. I don't, you know, I don't want all the engagement with other people and community with other people. No, no, I'm just going to stand in isolation. As long as I can stand in the shadows, then I can hide. In a community, you cannot hide. There's a psychologist 
out of Stanford. His name is Philip Zimbardo, and, and this is what he writes. He said, I know of no more potent killer than isolation. There's no more destructive influence on physical and mental health than the isolation of you from me and us from them. And then he goes on to say, the devil's strategy for our times is to trivialize human existence by isolating us from one another while creating this delusion that the reason why we're isolated is because there are time pressures and work demands and economic uncertainties. And the Stanford psychologist would say it's just a trick of the evil one to keep us in isolation. Now, I said you don't want to confess your sins. When you read something like that in James, if you don't really know what he may be implying here, you may say, confess my sins. What do I have to do? Stand up in church, confess all my sins? No. I would tell you it would be helpful, though, if you had one or two people in your life that you could be completely open with. People that you know are caring. People that you know are absolutely confidential. You see, a person like this, if you find one, it is a rare gift, but if you find one, you know what a person like this, not only are they confidential, they know you and they love you warts and all. And they're more than just a sympathetic listener. They will challenge you and they will hold you accountable. And here's the delusion of our day. And maybe you think this way. Maybe you're thinking it right now. But if I really come out into the open and I really make myself a part of a healthy, faith-building community, then maybe if people really know me, maybe they won't love me. If they really know who I am, if they really know my struggles, if they really know my problems, if they really know my weaknesses, if they really know me, if they really know me, some of my hurts and pains and thoughts and fears and doubts, then maybe they wouldn't really love me. But the right person will. The right person will love you in the good times and in the bad times. The right person will love you when everything is going incredibly well in your life and when you've got your face in your hands and you're crying your eyes out. The right person. And all of us need people like that in our life. All of us, when you think about it, are sinners in a sense. We all are forgiven sinners, but sinners nonetheless. And we can confess to a totally trustworthy friend, and it has to be a totally trustworthy friend. And most assuredly, we can confess our sins to God, and we should. And you're going to have a moment to do this. Because what we're going to do is we're going to take communion and we're going to do that in just a moment. In fact, while I'm going to read this last statement, I'd ask our ushers to go ahead and get prepared. But I want you to look at the statement up here on the screen. It sort of summarizes what we've been talking about for the last few moments. John Orberg, in a book that he wrote many, many years ago, says, The yearning to attach and connect, to love and be loved, is the fiercest longing of the soul. Our need for community with people and the God who made us is to the human spirit what food and air and water are to the human body. We're going to take communion. And why are we taking communion? It's just like something strange that happens in church. Not at all. The reason we take communion is because Jesus said that we should take communion. Jesus said it. He says it this way. He says, when you do this, you do it in remembrance of me. So in just a moment, the same popcorn buckets that came by earlier, they're going to come by. But this time... 
we'd like for you to reach in and take something out. Not the first time, all right? But this time, reach in and take something out. It's a little cob, and it symbolizes the body and blood of Christ. You peel back that top layer, and there's a little wafer, and it represents Christ's body. And you take that little wafer, as I often do. Maybe you'd want to do this. And before I take it, I just remember. That's what Jesus said, right? You remember. And I remember the flogging that Jesus took. The beating, awful, inhumane beating that he took for me and for you. He was innocent, sinless. He did it for our sins. I think about when these guys walked over to him and took this, what we know as a crown of thorns, almost like spikes, not little tiny stickers. Oh, you say you're king of the Jews, and Jesus never really claimed that. They took it and they pressed it into his brow. While he's hanging from the cross, one of the soldiers took a sword and thrust it into his side. And so when I hold that little piece of bread, I try to remember. I remember what Jesus did for me, what he endured for me. You peel that next little layer back and there's just some little grape juice in there and that is uh, symbolic of Jesus' blood. And I always try to remember that. I look at that cop and I say, Jesus... I've committed so many sins in my lifetime. And the only way that I could ever have forgiveness is because you shed your blood to cover up my sins. I couldn't be good enough, couldn't be righteous enough, couldn't develop a moral improvement plan that would be great enough to wash away all the stuff I've ever done in my lifetime. But Jesus, when he shed blood, he said, if you come to me and you're sincere, I will forgive you and I will cleanse you. And I will treat you as though you've never sinned. And we remember that. And we take it. Now, I know what some of you are thinking because I've been in services like this. You're like, hey, I'm new. I don't even belong to this church. And I, you know, I'm like a Christian. Do I even take communion? And at our church, we practice open communion. You don't have to be a member of our church. You don't have to be. If you're a Christian, though, you want to do it. We practice open communion. And why do you do it? Member or not? It's because you do it to remember Jesus. And there's a second group of you like, what? Communion? Don't even, what? And for you, you may be thinking, I, I don't even need to do this. But here's what I want you to know. Here's some great news. Listen, listen. You can receive Jesus into your heart right here, right now. And the good thing about God's grace is there's not like a 90-day waiting period where you say, I received Jesus today, and then 90 days from now, six months from now, I get to take communion. No. You can pray this prayer with me. Receive Jesus right here, right now. Know that your sins are forgiven. Know that there's a secure place for you in heaven and that you're going to have the Holy Spirit giving guidance and direction to your life. You can have that promise. You can have that assurance. And you can take communion today. And you can remember what Jesus did for you 2,000 years ago on a cross. You can do that. But you'd want to pray this prayer with me. Pray it right where you're at. Don't even have to pray it out loud. Pray it in your mind. Pray it in your heart. Dear Jesus, I come to you. I know I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I've sinned. Sinner, sin. And I've sinned. And I need forgiveness. And I'm really sorry for what I've done. And I know that there's a void in my life that only you can fill. And I pray that you would come into my life. I need direction. I don't want to spend the rest of my life just trying to figure all this out on my own. I don't want to die and wonder where I'm going to end up. Jesus, I invite you to come into my life right now. Forgive me of my sins. Be the leader. Be the Lord. 
be the director of my life. And if you will, and I know you will, then I will follow you and serve you. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Now, here's what's going to happen. Ushers are going to distribute this. The band is going to lead us in a song. And uh, here's what I encourage you to do. Use this time to confess sin. Use this time to reflect and to remember what Jesus did for you. Use this time for worship. And there, we're not all going to take it at the same time, all right? So I'm just telling you that. We're not all going to take it. But once you've done, maybe you've confessed sin. Maybe you've reflected on what Jesus did. Maybe you've worshiped. Maybe you've done all the above. Then at a time that is right for you, then you can take communion. And you can stand if you want. You can sit if you want. At the end of the psalm, Pastor Randy's going to have us all. Toward the end of that psalm, Pastor Randy's going to have us all stand. And then after that, you don't leave. I'm going to come back. And then I'm going to close this out in prayer. Hallelujah. 
Praise to Jesus this morning. Amen. How many of you are thankful for the grace of God? You're thankful for God's grace. You see, grace is something that you and I receive that we don't deserve. A lot of times our thinking is, you know what? If I do something, for example, I work my job all week, I deserve, I deserve to get a paycheck. If you say, well, you know what? I've cut back on Chick-fil-A this week. I deserve to see a lighter number when I stand on the scales. You say, I deserve that. But when you and I receive forgiveness, that is something we don't deserve. God gives it to us because of grace. And that ought to be one of the reasons why we just worship God. We come together. What did God speak to you about today? What did he speak to you? It's this whole idea of we need to be a part of community. We just need to come together as one. As it was for the early Christians, we come together. It was a priority. It was a priority. We come together and we worship together and we learn from the Bible how to do life, how to live life, how to be Jesus' disciple. We start more and more stepping out of the shadows and saying, I'm not going to live in isolation. I'm not going to be lonely. I'm going to do life with people. And I'm going to love people and I'm going to be loved. And I'm going to be the person that God really wants me to be. And God's got that plan for you, and you just need to embrace it. I'm so glad that you came today. Don't miss next week. We wrap it up. It's a message you will not want to miss. I love you, and I hope you have an awesome week. I'll see you right back here next Sunday.